text of the Ten Commandments is they didn't just pop down for randomly. They, they came about as God had delivered Israel out of slavery, out of Egypt, and made them to be his people, made them to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So he wanted them to display his holiness and glory before the nations as his holy people. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments as kind of like their constitution for how are you to live as a holy people before me and before the nations? And uh, so the Ten Commandments still have, are relevant for us today, even though we don't apply them in exactly the same way Israel did. Uh, Israel lived them out as, the, as God's redeemed people. He, they did not live them out as those who were earning God's favor. And so we uh, still respond to God's moral will in the Ten Commandments as God's redeemed people in Christ. Christ is the only one who's ever fulfilled, kept them perfectly, and so he filled them, fulfilled them for us and granted us his righteousness as a gift. But in that, we, we live out, uh, we, we do respond to the Ten Commandments. So uh, today we're looking at the Fifth Commandment, and that is a change from the first four, which is not an amazing fact to say that, but it's, it's a change because the first four commandments dealt with our relationship with God, and the Fifth through Tenth Commandments concern our relationship with people. So the first four are about our vertical obligations, and the last six are about our horizontal obligations. So we have Exodus 20.12. I think we can get that up there. Honor your father and mother. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And that gets carried right over to the New Testament as well by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.2-3. He says the same thing, honor your father and mother, and he notes this is the first commandment with a promise. And he says uh, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So at the top of the list of our duties to people is that we are to honor our parents. It's interesting that this commandment is the first one God mentions for our duties toward people. Because you might think, well, what do you think is the, the, the main bad thing to not do? And on most people's list, if you, if you just talk to people on the street and say, what do you think is the worst sin, the worst bad thing? And most people are going to say killing people, murder. And that's obviously not a good thing to do. It's bad. But that's next. And the first duty we have toward people is to honor our parents. So that's interesting. Why is that? Um, no one is going to say that on, dis, dishonoring your parents is, is the worst sin especially in the Portland area, because they're going to say it's not recycling and not buying fair trade coffee. But when you um, honor your father and mother is the foundation for love your neighbor. So that's the first thing you learn by honoring your parents, you're learning to love your neighbor. So the parent-child relationship is foundational for all other relationships. So it does make sense that it begins the list of how we live toward others. Now the word honor can also be translated glorify, so um, I've never asked my, my ch children to glorify me, but, but today's a good day to start, so. <laughs> children are to highly regard their parents, is what he's saying. If they don't, it will not go well for them. For example, these are the good old days, Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father and, or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of, this, 
of his city. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from their midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Yeah, those were the good old days, huh? Uh, things have changed. We, in, under Christ, we, we're no longer under the theocracy of Israel where civil laws carry out God's will, but God still is in, in favor of dishonoring your parents. He, we just spiritually address that, so it's not physically carried out. Or look at Leviticus 20, verse 9. For anyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood is upon him. So God definitely didn't think highly of dishonoring your parents, and he, he thinks highly of honoring your parents. And uh, the 4th century church father, Augustine, said, if anyone fails to honor his parents, is there anyone he will spare? So in other words, if you dishonor your parents, it's ind indicative how you're going to treat, treat other people. The Heidelberg Catechism. Anybody been in the Heidelberg Catechism lately? Well, you're going to be in it. Get that up on the screen. What does God require in the fifth commandment? That I show all honor, love, and faithfulness to my father and mother, and to all in authority over me, submit myself with due obedience to all their good instruction and correction, and also bear patiently with their weaknesses and infirmities, since it is God's will to govern us by their hand. So that's a pretty good summary. Let's consider this commandment in some more detail. So what we're saying is the parent-child relationship forms the foundation for all human relationships. Parents are the primary instructors and influencers of their children. Not the government, not the schools, not the church, but the parents. Now these other groups have important roles, but God's design is that parents have the primary responsibility for instructing and influencing their kids. Anyone in the social sciences field will acknowledge that study after study shows that the best predictor of, of how you're going to turn out, uh, like whether you finish school, whether you uh, stay out of jail, whether you keep off drugs, not being promiscuous, living a good and beneficial life as an adult, is what happened in the home in your upbringing. It's highly influential. Now there are all kinds of exceptions. Sometimes good parents turn out bad kids and bad parents turn out good kids. So it's not an absolute predictor, but it's in general, uh, that's, what they, that's what they see. Uh, I was interested that uh, a couple weeks ago I, I heard a, a feature on National Public Radio, and if you listen to National Public Radio, they're not like an advocate of Christian truth. And um, they, they were interv interviewing a guy uh, who was an expert in, in education. And he says, so the name of the uh, feature was Poverty, Dropouts, Pregnancy, Suicide, What the Numbers Say About Fatherless Kids. So basically what he says is um, fatherlessness is a major problem, and uh, it, it hampers education quite a bit. He spent his, his life, this guy's name is Alan, Alan Blankstein. He has spent most of his life advocating for kids who struggle in school. He wrote the book, Failure is Not an Option, to encourage schools to have more high-performing cultures. And he says, I've, see, I've been in this for 30 years, and when I speak to superintendents, social service people, and counselors in schools, they'll easily acknowledge that at the root of kids' 
academic problems is a lack of relationship with their, with their father. Now, um, for those who have our heroic single parent, single moms who are doing a great job, uh, we support you, we encourage you, and, and we, we want to support you, and you're doing great. But the reality is when you don't have both parents in the home, to do the job of one parent is a challenge. And fathers have a, uh, an, a specific role in that as well. So I was amazed to hear a secular study come up with that. But, but again and again, we could cite other studies, but we got the word of God that says father and mother ha- are, are the influences of their kids, and they make a big difference in how they turn out. So what do children need to learn from their parents? Well, children learn from parents who exercise loving authority in their lives and who provide for them, that God exercises loving authority in their lives and that he provides for them. In this context of love and provision, they learn to obey God and human authorities. Uh, Ephesians 6.1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. They learn about submitting to authority in the home and in society. That's why this, we call the sermon Honor to Whom Honor is Due, because God has established authorities that exist in law enforcement and government and other entities. And so you, you don't automatically want to submit to, to authority. Um, what's the first thing that you're, the first word that your sweet babies learn? Right. It's sad to see an adult negotiating with a three-year-old. Now, Jimmy, if you don't stop hitting your sister, you might have to take a time out. Jimmy, I mean it. I'm going to count to five. One, two, three, four. Jimmy, I'm really close to five. Please stop before I get to five. You remember how much you hate those timeouts, don't you? Jimmy, I know you do. That's why I'm going to start counting again. So mommy doesn't have to put you in that boring old time out. All you have to do is stop hitting your sister. I know you really want to because you're a good boy, aren't you, Jimmy? And on it goes. Those are not good situations. I don't know if Jimmy got, had to do a time out, but he may be doing time in prison someday. I heard of one family who hired a nanny, and they, they said to the nanny, don't say no to our kids. Just redirect them. Similar to negotiating behavior with young children is the philosophy that I'm not going to impose my values on my kids. I'm going to let them discover their values for themselves. Ever tried that with a dog? I'm not going to impose my values on my dog. I'm just going to let him determine what's, what he, his own values are. How do you think that's going to go? Parents are appointed by God's design to teach their children to obey authority, and they are to instruct them in God's standards. So we see this in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, does this mean fathers should not cross their children's wills, lest it makes them angry? Yet they're supposed to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? That sounds like an impossible job. How do you do that without making them angry? Because you cross their wills when you, when you discipline them. Uh, especially if your child knows this verse. It says, uh-uh, Dad. Ephesians 6, 4. 
you made me angry, and that's a violation of Ephesians 6, 4. Don't you, don't you read your Bible? I don't have to listen to you. Discipline and instruction always address the will and, and often involves correction. So Paul can't be saying don't contradict your child's will because it might make him angry. Now, fathers and mothers wrongly provoke their children to anger in certain ways. They can do that by um, disciplining them in anger. And if any of you have not ever disciplined your kids in anger, I want to touch the hem of your garment and bow down before you. Another way we wrongly provoke them to anger is when we discipline inconsistently. One day we make an issue of this thing, the next day, not a big deal. We're too tired to deal with it. Another way we might do that is we don't punish one child for what another child does. So you punish him for doing that, but you don't punish her for doing that. And kids will let you know that. Or we punish for behaviors of little children that are not willful rebellion, but are just foolishness. So your kids are foolish. The Bible says that. I got verses all over Proverbs that says that. And they do things that are childish. Um, so they spill the milk, you don't punish them. If they throw the milk down on the ground in anger, you do punish them. So yes, we are to teach our children to respect and submit to authority. We aim to model good and just and loving authority since there can be bad and unjust authority. We want our kids to know the difference between good and bad authority because we don't want them to obey wrong authorities. So we, we teach them, this is what good authority looks like, and you don't have to do what bad authority tries to make you do. So how do parents bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? So in particular, how do you keep them focused on, on the Lord? Well, you need Jesus and God's word to be central to and a clear priority in your daily life. So it's got to be real for you to, be, to, to have attraction with them. It can't just happen on Sunday for an hour or two. We see this in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So you need the word of God on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. From parents, children learn about God. They learn about the one who created them from a mother and father who represent God to them. They learn about Jesus, who redeems them from their sins of not obeying their parents and from not being able to, to fully uh, obey God. Even though the majority of what kids learn from their parents is in everyday conversations and activities with the family. So they catch it from everyday talk and how you live your family life. It's good for parents to have some focus time for teaching your children biblical truth. So some people have what we call, they sometimes call them family devotions where they read scripture passage, apply and discuss as fits the age, and um, they, sometimes they sing a hymn or a song. Uh, sometimes they, the reading is out of a devotional book or a missionary biography or something like that. So there's no like one-size-fits-all way to do it, but, but have some focused time with your kids that impresses upon them the, the, the need of God's word and godly people. One tool for doing this is called a catechism. I don't know if any of you have ever been catechized. That's not a surgery. That's a, 
learning from a catechism. Uh, a catechism is a series of questions and answers. So you, you learn and eventually memorize the answers to the questions. They're helpful tools for, for learning Christian doctrine or teaching. There are some classic ones, but uh, there's a newer one that produced by Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan uh, called the New City Catechism. So you can, you can get that online on, the web, on a website. Just Google New City Catechism. They have a, adult answers and kids' answers. So got the adult answers here, and the next one slide will show the kids' answer. It's also a, a phone app, so you can get it on your iPhone or your Android phone. You can get it on an iPad, and it comes in these, these booklets as well. If you're interested in checking this out, we have some of these back at the uh, information desk, and you can uh, sign out for one and, and let us know what you think of it. But they're, they're, it's valuable, and this, uh, this has 52 questions and answers, so you can focus on one per week for a year. And you might actually find you learn some things from it, because it's not, not a given that you're already covered. All, all your bases are covered either. So back to Exodus 20.12. Christian parents are to bring their children up in the Lord's instruction, and the virtues that they learn will be respectable and honorable for society in general because kids learn about compassion, they learn about forgiveness, they learn about self-discipline, self-control, the value of hard work, in theory, being responsible, sacrificing for the good of others. In other words, from parents, kids learn how to be adults. At least, hopefully, that's the track you've got them on. Um, Senator Ben Sass of Nebraska wrote a book called The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis. And he's concerned that uh, kids are not learning to become adults. We are living in an America of perpetual adolescence. Kids don't know what an adult is because we're not training them that way. So uh, kids sometimes get adult responsibilities at a very young age, but adult privileges, but they don't carry out the responsibilities of being adults. So um, we're to raise them to be hard workers, to take responsibility, and to not be 35 in their parents' basement and not doing much of anything. And we, uh, that's a problem in our culture. But other, the opposite end of the spectrum is helicopter parenting. So we're so protective over them, we, we're so smothering of them that they, they don't get the chance to grow because we're too on top of them. So we're raising them up to become adults. And our goal is that they, they deny themselves, take up their cross, and, and follow Christ. Not just be good adults in our culture, but be Christ-serving adults in our culture. When children are younger, say 11-ish or younger, how they honor their parents is essentially that they obey their parents with a good attitude. So, like, I know all, all of your kids do that, so no problem. As they get into their teen years, and then as adults, how they honor their parents changes. So, how do you honor your father and mother as a teenager? Or do you, do you, do you get time off? Well, I realize that we parents strangely lose our intelligence when you turn about 14 or 15, and when you resurface at age 25, you might notice that we start getting smart again. So just be patient with us. 
as long as you're living in your parents' home, you obey their rules. Even the ones you think are not fair or unreasonable. Now, they might give you an appeal process, especially if you show responsibility. As you demonstrate responsibility, you, you earn their trust, and they, they might treat you more like an adult. You show that you value their experience as having lived life longer than you. Your parents are not perfect, and you're not either. Bear with their imperfections. Appreciate what you think they do well at. You might even express appreciation and gratitude. Once a year, maybe? What, what if you're a Christian and your parents are not a Christian? How do you honor your parents that way? If you're a Christian and they're not a Christian, well, one thing you don't do is you don't uh, look down on them or, or disrespect them or belittle them for not knowing what you know. You do show them respect. You express appreciation for what they've done for you. You still obey them if you are young and living in their home, except if they require you to disobey God, then you respectfully don't disobey God. And even then, you treat them honorably. You're displaying the goodness and humility of Christ. You live this truth before them and pray for them. How do you honor your father and mother as a married person? Well, in marriage, you leave your parents as your primary family response relationship and form a, a new priority relationship with your spouse. You still love and respect your parents, but you don't put them, them before your spouse. You may still seek their counsel, spend time with them and, and according to your family circumstances, but you, your spouse is now the priority. So it's different. It changes when you get married. Uh, a lot of marriages struggle because they're too clinging to the parents and the parents are too clinging to them. How do you honor your parents or a parent who has hurt you badly? That's a tough one. If, if it's been physical or verbal abuse, it's very hard. If it's maybe they got drunk a lot and they wasted money and embarrassed you and the rest of the family, or maybe one parent abandoned the family and left the spouse for someone else. How do you honor a parent who's done that to you? The kinds of wounds that parents who harm and shame their children goes way deep. And I can't even begin to adequately speak to these situations with just a few comments, but I, I hope some comments will, will point the way to healing. First, you need to look to cling to Jesus who suffered the worst shame ever that anyone ever did. Or ever would. And, and he absolutely didn't deserve to suffer for my sins. So he, he definitely didn't get what he deserved, and he, he did not get what he did deserve. And know that however ugly, however shameful, however hurtful your parents' damage to you was, you don't need to let it define you. It's not your identity. You're not forever a victim of what they did. What they did was real to you, but, but in Christ, you, you're not defined by that. What Christ has done for you frees you from being in bondage to the shame and the wrongs done to you. In Christ, what is most true of you is that you've been made new. What's most true of you is your past doesn't define and have ultimate power over you. You were washed. You were made holy. You were made right, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. That's much more powerful than the wrongs done to you.
you might say, I can't do that. I, I, you have no idea how they ruined my life. Besides, they don't think they've done any, any wrong. Or if they do, they're, they're not sorry. If I forgive them, they won't even care. They'll never feel any guilt for what they did. That's possible. It may not. But your forgiving them doesn't mean that what they did doesn't matter. It doesn't make, it doesn't mean that the, uh, the relationship is reconciled. It doesn't mean, that it doesn't make it okay or minimize the, the, the harm they did. Your forgiving them means that even though what they did to you was shameful, you're choosing not to hold it against them. And you are doing this because Jesus paid the price for your sins and he is not holding them against you. Forgiving them if they are not repentant and seeking forgiveness doesn't mean the relationship is reconciled, all consequences are erased, and trust is restored. It means you're not going to hold their sins against them in bitterness and anger. You're not their judge. Christ is their judge. But he is also eager to forgive those who turn to him. You hope and pray they will turn to Christ so they can know the freedom that you have found. And you can communicate these things to them. Um, you may not feel comfortable doing that in person. They may not be able to for whatever reason. But you can write a letter to honor them as your parents. If you could think of one thing to thank them for, shock them and thank them for it. You're doing this for Christ's sake and not because of your parents deserve it. Now, as I'm getting there, I'm really interested in how do you care for your parents in your old age, in their old age? How you care for your parents in, in their old age? As your parents age and become less able to care for themselves, the way you honor them as their God-given role as your parents and for you, the years they sacrificed for you and cared for you is to care for them course. How you do that is going to vary with, with your family dynamics and circumstances. At the very least, honoring your parents in their old age means don't abandon them. So 1 Timothy 5.8 says, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So that's pretty serious. Honoring your parents in their old age also means we are to listen to and honor the wisdom that they have for living life. So listen to them. That's honoring them. Caring for aging parents can be challenging. It can be awkward. Changing roles from being cared for to caregiver. Often difficult medical decisions, housing decisions, and financial decisions. And just as truly as loving your children and caring for them doesn't mean you can or should give them everything they, they want. So caring for your parents doesn't mean you can or should give them everything that they want. So just because they think they, they want something because you're caring for them doesn't mean that they automatically get it. That's not, not caring for them because they may not be wanting a good thing. You love them and do what's good for them, but they may not think that giving up the keys to the car is good for them. And you and, your neighbor, and their neighbors may know for sure it's a good thing for them. They may want to remain independent and they depend on all kinds of support to keep them independent. So they depend a lot on lots of things to keep them independent. 
so that gets challenging. My mother, for a while, had been complaining about not having any great-grandchildren. Great-grandchildren, like, like she thinks her grandchildren are great, but great-grandchildren in terms of time, like next generation. And so I had to explain to her, it's kind of hard to pull that off, Mom, when, when none of our kids are married yet. We can't just come up with great-grandchildren in, in a good way. Well, now um, I have a daughter that just got married. So solution. <laughs> Hard decisions have to be made in caring for your aging parents, but abandoning them or warehousing them is not honoring them. And again, be sure to thank them for what they have done for you. And I know I haven't done that enough for my mother. It's quite likely that as a nation we are among the worst, if not the worst, in terms of honoring our elders. And as Christ followers, we, we need to be countercultural in that. Now, finally, how should we understand the promise attached to the, this command? So Ephesians 6, 2-3, Paul puts it this way. The way it said it in Exodus, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. So Israel living long in the land, and now uh, honor your father and mother that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. So this isn't the promise of longer lifespan. Like if I take care of my parents, God's going to give me a long life necessarily. For Israel, it, is, it was a promise that they would continue to enjoy God's blessings in the promised land and that he would not expel them. For Christians, it means we'll enjoy the covenant blessings of being in Christ. We'll, he will bring about more joy, more peace, more do all kinds of things that we don't even understand because we've been obedient in honoring our father and mother. And even for those who are not God's people, life goes better. Jesus, did he honor his parents? Yeah, it says when he was 12 years old, he was submissive to them. So you could have said, hey, uh, Mom and Dad, you got to know I'm son of God, and um, so I don't have to listen to you. But he didn't do that. He submitted to them. And Jesus, when he was on the cross, entrusted his mother by giving her to the Apostle John to care for her after he was left this world. And in terms of his heavenly father... Jesus claimed that he did nothing on his own authority, but spoke just as the Father taught him, and that he always did the, the things that are pleasing to the Father. He always did the things that are pleasing to the Father. And Jesus prayed this way to his Father. I glorified you on earth. I honored you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Because Jesus honored his Father and did what he sent him to do, we can be saved from all of our sins, including the, our failures to honor our parents and our failures to honor God. Jesus invites us into fellowship with him. If you are in Christ, you've put your trust in Jesus' incarnation and that he came to this world as son of God, became a human being, and as well as being son of God. His death on the cross paid totally for your sins, and his resurrection gave, gave you power to live a new kind of life give you everlasting life. If you've 
trusted Christ in that way and you, you recognize he is your only hope, then you are welcome to this meal that's available here at, at these tables. The bread symbolizing his body, the cup symbolizing his blood. And as you take these elements, they're not magic. They don't turn into, in, into anything. They're just ways that we symbolize our covenant relationship, our being united to Jesus Christ. So we're going to have a time of worship for, in song, and during that time, you're welcome to come up and take the bread, dip it in the cup, and you can take it right there or you take it back to your seat. Prepare your hearts and, and uh, search your hearts and, and recognize what Christ has done for you and sins he's forgiven and, and how he's worked in your life. So let's prepare our hearts. Father, because of your son, Jesus, we can call you Father. How rich and merciful that is. Thank you for giving us Christ, your son, the one who honored you perfectly. We have dishonored you in massively in, in many ways, and we have failed to honor our parents in many ways. So because what Christ, your son, accomplished for us on the cross, he became the sin bearer, the rescuer, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And because of that great exchange, our sin for his righteousness and his righteousness for our sins, we have life in him. And we can live increasingly for your honor and glory. So, Father, search our hearts through your spirit. We recognize any ways that we need to seek forgiveness, cleansing from through the blood of Christ. As your word says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So thank you for that great cleansing work you do for us and in us in Jesus. We commit ourselves to you now and ask that you would be glorified in our time of worship and receiving the elements of Christ's body and blood in his name.